0: Sequel Quest Episode 80: An Independence Day Patriotic Special.
1: We're proud to be here on Sequel Quest, where we talk about fake movies, and we can't forgive the studio suits who prevented Hell for Three. So we have to make up sequels and prequels to films that never had their day there ain't no doubt there
2: won't be made, but we we'll pitch
1: them anyway. Friends, listeners, podcasters, lend us your ears. For we are united in a cause that is greater than the individual. An ideal that will erase party lines and lead this nation of imaginary movie lovers to greatness. Ask not what this podcast could do for you, but what you could do for this podcast. We are here tonight to talk about sequels, prequels, and reboots to your favorite patriotic films. We're going to dig deep into that topic to find out what it means. But to do so, we'll need the help of Sequel Quest Nation. First up, crossing the Delaware with an axe he used to chop down a cherry tree in one hand and a cinematic constitution in the other. It's George Jefferson Campbell Smith.
2: Is that me? That's, that's, yeah. Hey, I'm, my name is not actually Jefferson. I just want to clarify.
1: <laughs> and sitting down by the fireside to let us know that this is a podcast that will live in infamy. It's FD Jeremy. All right. <laughs> Riding my horse through the night to let you know that the podcast is coming. The podcast is coming. I'm Adam Revere. That's good. That's the 4th good. of July. Will soon be upon us. We are in the thick of it right now, thinking about what is this thing called patriotism? And how is patriotism brought to us cinematically, on screen? For all our international listeners, obviously we are talking more about the American bent as Americans, but hopefully you can uh, apply such things to your own cinema as well. And here we are now... Mm -hmm wondering what is it if you say this film is so patriotic it inspired me it made me proud it made whatever it was i think it's in many respects kind of a broad topic because patriotism may mean different things to different people depending on what version of democracy they really subscribe to you know that that's why there are political parties there's different elements of that but at the same time there's so many films throughout all the years of cinema existing that have tried to tackle that. So, let me ask you guys as we get into this, what elements do you look for in a film?
0: Now, now hold on. Can we can we define patriotic uh patriotism? <laughs> uh, I'm I'm looking up Merriam-Webster dictionary and it is very sparse. Is it? Yeah.
2: Well, and I think that's the trouble, Jeremy, like Adam is talking about. Like, it's a very broad spectrum of what gives you that feeling of patriotism.
0: I scanned through a few hundred movies. Many of them are very surprising that people would even label them as patriotic.
2: Right. Well, and I think that's the thing, too. Like, like and that was the one that I commented on, is I saw one of them on the list was Captain America Winter Soldier, which on one side, like, Captain America is kind of the definitive patriotic superhero. But on the other hand, Winter Soldier specifically was kind of anti-patriotic because the government was the thing that was corrupt and was out to get Captain America. So that wasn't, I didn't leave, personally, I didn't leave Captain America Winter Soldier feeling like, yeah, we love USA. It was more like, I'm going to look sideways at every politician that I run across because they might be a Nazi spy. But... Like for some people that you know that that's what does it for them. Other people, anytime they show soldiers
0: shooting people, that's that does it for them. Well, and some that I didn't even put on that list. You you could say the well the the good movies from the Rocky. N- well, those Rocky Four did make it. Oh. Uh, you yeah. could also <laughs> say Creed Two could have some patriotic overtones. Oh, we'll see. Yeah. Rematch. So the good Indiana Jones, those could technically be patriotic because the good ones are when he punches Nazis in the face. That's pretty patriotic. Well, it depends. Is an anti-Nazi movie really
2: patriotic? I don't know if pro-Nazi movies are patriotic, but anti-Nazi. <laughs> well, that just would just depend say, on what
0: side of the fence you're on. Yeah, no. No, I don't think so. I, I understand, but patriotism <laughs> is defined as love for or devotion to one's country. Depending right. upon which side of the fence you're on, it could be a patriotic or anti-patriotic movie. To kind of get to your point, Adam, that you started off with, is that what hits
2: that note for me, and I don't know if I would always call it patriotic per se. I don't think a lot of people would define it that way. It's a movie, like like for me, and I, I think I listed this when we were talking about uh, potential movies, maybe the ultimate patriotic movie to me is Jimmy Stewart's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Cause it's kind of like Frank Capra wanted to be, here's everything that is great about America. Here is the ideal and what America is supposed to be. For me, that's what hits me. That's what hits me about like, you're right. Like this is this is America at its greatest. 1776, the same thing, like the original or the the, the musical. It's like, yes, the founding fathers were all like really shady characters, but nonetheless, They came together for one brilliant moment, put everything aside in order to do something amazing. And that, you know, is what makes America awesome. And so that's what hits that patriotic note for me.
1: Because, you know, you mentioned before that a lot of people tend to think of, and especially if you are of a certain era, there is kind of, okay, if there's soldiers in this movie... It must be patriotic, you know, Saving Private Ryan. Is that a patriotic film because it's about soldiers? But at the same time, so often the camera is kind of pointed in a, a different direction. You know, if you get something like Platoon or Born on the Fourth of July or these ones that are more of like an indictment you know, of the military and are not uh, doing it in a favorable light. So it's like, it really is each individual story has something to do with that. Now, for me, I know what really fills me with a passion and respect and admiration for the country. And you mentioned the founding fathers and where we're at is the immigrant experience, Mm. because that's, if you look at it, that's what America was founded on, right? The Europeans who settled this nation were not, the Native Americans. They right. came here seeking certain freedoms, and then the country was populated by immigrants again, seeking that American dream, which is what I find inspiring in films that focus on that. So, even in my college screenwriting class, I wrote a fish out of water comedy about a Cuban immigrant sneaking his <laughs> way Into the U.S., called "American yes, Cool." You did, yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, so like, so those those types of things for me. I always look at that, and it makes me take a step back and say, and I've known many immigrants personally, to say, you know, wow, you know, like, these are things that I take for granted, that these people experienced in one country and gave everything they could to get away from to come here and it makes you realize how much you know, of a, a sanctuary it can be for people. Also, the fact that I grew up with so many foreign exchange students in my home and they would come here. And it was kind of the same story as I love my culture. I love where I'm from. But America is amazing. And I'm so happy to be here. And yeah. so those types of things really always stick out to me. You know, one in particular for me that's, uh, I guess, a nostalgic favorite is An American Tale, where I feel like that's a, a real great one that shows you those things. But how about for you,
0: Jeremy? It's less about the 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 content and more of how you feel with the movie. It's a pride. It's also, it's a lot of the story itself, because if I can latch onto a story and live through this character's life in the moment, I can find some form of patriotism in their story. For me, sometimes that takes
1: me out. I mean, every movie, well, not every movie, but most movies are about somebody's personal journey. But sometimes I feel like it's almost like there's a personal journey, but it just happens to be in a setting where there's maybe like patriotic iconography. But it's not necessarily about a nation itself or whatever, you know, I almost look at something again, not American patriotism, but a movie like Dunkirk, you know, where you look at that, where it's just kind of this general sense of here were all these different sides of the military and the lay people and then, you know, of that nation coming together and trying to solve a problem that they were experiencing, you know, like that is a grander, more broad experience than, say, darkest hour you know you go into that it's like okay that's about one man's experience trying to lead a nation during a war and trying to raise their patriotism for their nation but at the same time you're really just focusing on his struggle and what he was going through to me it kind of mutes that patriotic message even though people are being roused by him in the in those moments
2: well and then the other interesting thing that i think because i know on some of those lists because i know jeremy same thing i i don't know that i looked at a hundred but i looked at like a couple of different lists to see all the different kinds of movies someone somewhere has found patriotic and i think one of the interesting things is the stories about when america didn't look so good and about how that can actually be patriotic to people like for example last year with hidden figures and that hidden figures was about you know these women that were are one of the reasons that our space program was actually successful even though they went without notice and without that but the reason their story is so significant is because of how horrible America was to black women back in those times. Uh, same thing with like Dances with Wolves. Dances with Wolves is still a dark and nasty time of our history to talk about our mistreatment of American Indians. But it's that same thing that they are still part of America's history. And the fact that there is still uh, a story to be told and still that celebration of not that, hey, we did a great job in handling the, the Native Americans, but in that fact that, that this is still that story, like even the Native Americans, like that's what I love about Dances with Wolves is it's it's their triumph in the face of horrible thing.
0: What you're saying is essentially we have conflicted interests and a perplexing, complex problem that needs to be solved or dealt with or really... Uh, insurmountable odds kind of like the the underdog syndrome like that's that's a cliche thing but people attach better to historical things mm. in a patriotic way because they're quote unquote relatable like that's something that people can look back on their own history and figure out how it relates to them or even like miracle the hockey game US yeah, versus Russia point. i mean we're we're following People that actually lived dressed up a little bit, dramatized, but you can still get in the moment with it.
1: Well, but it's funny how that could be made to be cartoonish because we mentioned Rocky IV earlier, which, which, like you said, is propaganda is what that film is you know that that one definitely was
2: but i I would say too not just rocky four i mean rocky all along the reason that rocky won best picture is because it was the american story it was the underdog it was the guy fighting against the man and doing that that's the the triumph of rocky was the triumph of america that one you're right was a little bit more blatant because he literally went over and fought a russian (laughs) <laughs> who is stronger and on drugs, so... If I could change, uh, you could change. Uh, I've heard some people say that that's the greatest speech of all time, and I'm like, oh... Well, uh, it's got
1: a great sentiment. I won't argue that. I just don't think a boxing match is going to change international relations, but I, but I think it's it's a nice idea. But at the same time, like, I look back at something even again going smaller like as you're saying rocky is it was a a personal triumph for someone but who could make it an american could be giving it an opportunity and take it wherever their will and determination is going to do that but for me also a movie like the Sandlot is the american condition in a state of innocence those kids they're not necessarily dealing with heavy political issues during that film Even though we know the 60s, there was a lot of stuff going on, Cuban Missile Crisis, whatever. But there they are just playing this simple game. If there was an idealistic version of America, that's what it feels like the Sandlot kind of represents to me.
2: Well, and that's uh, that part, too, that is interesting. And I guess I can see both sides because it's the same thing. I was thinking about uh, uh, my wife Judy and I were talking about how you could put just about any movie that Frank Capra have ever made on this list because that's exactly what he did. You know, It's a Wonderful Life, As Good As It Gets, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. They're all these, you know, idealistic looks at Americana. Which is interesting, yeah, to, to say that as, because it, that, that's my thought, is that you look at the Sandlot, you look at It's a Wonderful Life, you look at, you know, those sort of things. If you set it in the Ukraine, does it really change the story much? I mean, granted, do they play baseball in Ukraine? I don't know. But it, is it distinct because it is in America? I, I don't know. That, that's the thing that I find interesting about that, that side of, of a patriotic movie.
1: Well, yeah, because like one of the the movies that kept coming up on all the lists I was reading was Forrest Gump. And I'm like, yes, he's going all throughout America and some turbulent times in American history. He's representing all that. But again, that's not a very positive look in America is kind of how I feel.
0: Well, Other know. than
1: to say, this man who, you know, was mentally right. deficient could yeah. succeed and well, uh, invest
2: and, in Apple Exactly. And, and so then it's so. kind of the American dream side. Yeah. But I, I wonder, because it's the one thing that I find really interesting, and it's not, I mean, I, and I know we started off this by saying, you know, we're talking about Fourth of July, so it's mostly about American patriotic movies. Like Like, you wonder, you look at something like Schindler's List. Now, I don't know that Schindler's List would necessarily be considered patriotic, but from a Jewish perspective to kind of have a authentic story told. Because it's on the flip side, it's that same thing. I don't know if you guys ever saw or were familiar with uh, the Tom Cruise movie about... uh, Yes, Valkyrie, thank you. And the the interesting thing about Valkyrie, if you haven't seen it, it's about the conspiracy to overthrow uh, the Nazis and Hitler by the, the Germans. And the response that that movie got in Germany For people saying, like, thank you, it's been too long that we've just all been said, like, oh, you're German, you must be a Nazi. It's like, no, no, like, there were people that stood up and said, no, we won't do this. And so there is a sense of national pride that comes from a story like that, which is still a negative story. And, I mean, Valkyrie, they all lost and they all got killed, so it's not a very happy story. But I wonder, with stuff like that, I mean, I don't know if it's the same thing, but for some reason I keep thinking about, I don't know if either of you guys saw Frost Nixon if you haven't seen Frost Nixon, you really need to. It's an amazingly brilliant film that's based on a play that's almost identical. That is the interview with Richard Nixon after he had resigned. And it's basically the interviewer is really trying to get him to admit he did something wrong. And it's kind of a battle of the wills and stuff like that. And again, for me, there's a little bit of that patriotic part of, you know what? No, this is what America stands for. And even when we go off track, like we're not okay with that. We want to see the right thing happen.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I thought I would just be funny to bring up, films with America or American in the title, because you would think that that would be a shorthand for like, Oh, this is going to be a patriotic film, <laughs> but think about this. So American gangster. Okay. With yeah. uh Denzel, right. Uh, American pie. Oh, how about that? You American
0: know? werewolf in London. There you go.
1: <laughs> Very patriotic. <That's> both, yeah. <laughs> uh, American beauty. There's a, a trippy one. American psycho. Yeah. Mm, yes. It's so interesting how that goes. And The same could be said, though, for movies like with President in the title. Yeah. Because I, I was thinking about that as well with stuff like, you know, All the President's Men, obviously, we know that's based on true events. So that was yeah. a time in our history when stuff like that was happening. But like Dead Presidents about bank robbers, you know, <laughs> or the the American President. But again, at the same time, I feel like that's not a movie about the state of the nation. That's a romantic film with the president at the center, right? Or even like a movie like Dave, you know, where it's oh, like, Oh,
2: I forgot about Dave. This. I love that movie. <laughs> That's so good. But
1: is it, does it fill you with, with a patriotic spirit? Absolutely. Just well, because of that,
2: because of what Dave represents, if you've seen that movie is that, yes, it's a comedy and yes, it's silly, but it's about this every man who believes in the American dream. And he believes in like, you know what? Like, what if we actually started working for the American people and we got people jobs and we got them out like blah, 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 and he inspires a nation because of it? Like, oh, I love that one. Ivan Reitman, man. Really
1: <laughs> Again, think about this. American Ninja. Great series of films.
2: <laughs> so,
1: yeah, we American Graffiti.
2: Yes. See, that's a slice of Americana.
1: That's a good one. George Lucas will treat you right, show you what it was like.
0: So, are we only going to talk about movies? Because there are some decent patriotic TV shows, I guess. I mean, you could say, like, The West Wing was one. Huh. Mm -hmm. Okay. It had a lot of themes and everything to it based in the White House. I mean, there's always going to be something going on. Agent X. This was one that I found. It only did one season on TNT. I believe you can still find it on, like, Hulu and some places. It's kind of a James Bond-esque TV show with Sharon Stone. And, yeah, that one's a good one. And the one that I was really enjoying that just got canceled by ABC was Designated Survivor. Oh, did
2: it finally get canceled? It
0: did. It got the axe in May. But there's talk that netflix is looking at it so yeah well that's another interesting one where that where that was both
2: like because it started off as a whole kind of like conspiracy about people trying to bring down the government and everything like that and then they kind of turned it into a west wing sort of a thing like that i mean like for me and that's the, the interesting thing about things like that and like with west wing where west wing was definitely an idealized picture of the political system and Aaron Sorkin definitely, you know, does his his thing. So he still makes it realistic and makes the people real and stuff. But I know for me, like what kind of bugs me is when the the description of a patriotic movie is a thing where um, Americans are 100% the hero and everybody else is the bad guy. Like for me, that's the stuff that kind of bugs me because I think there are some people that that's how they define patriotism is that they want something that's we're going to come off squeaky clean and everybody else was the bad guy. And the reality is, is that's not how reality is. And so, yeah, I, I like a little bit more reality to my patriotism, I feel.
1: Well, I'm very curious to see then what we picked. What were these movies we focused in on and said, this is a patriotic film that I feel like could be expanded upon? Are we doing a prequel? Are we doing a sequel? Where are we taking it? Jeff, why don't you start us off? Let us know about your pick.
2: Okay. Well, so everything that I have set up to now, throw out the window. Because (laughs) for some unknown reason, I was looking through a list and I was like, Huh, Red Dawn. Let's make a sequel to Red Dawn. Now, is Red Dawn patriotic? Some people say so. Wait, 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 which version? Oh come on. There is only one version.
0: Are you talking Russians or North Koreans?
2: You gotta talk about the Russians. <laughs> the North Koreans are just silly. Come on. Yeah. Well, I don't wanna bash on We're friends page. now. We don't wanna yeah. demonize yeah. our friends. so if you guys have known which the interesting thing and we've talked about this a lot on this podcast is that I know Adam you like when we talked about Gremlins and Indiana Jones is that Gremlins and Indiana Jones were the things uh, the Temple of Doom that brought PG-13 to become a thing and Red Dawn was actually the first released movie with a PG-13 rating which is funny there was one other movie that was made first but it didn't actually get released for five more months but anyway The interesting thing was that I was reading, if you guys have never seen the original Red Dawn, the Guinness Book of World Records in 1984 rated it the most violent movie of all time with 2.2 acts of violence per second. (laughs) (laughs) It was literally what they said. And I was watching, I haven't seen this, I have the DVD, but I haven't watched this in quite some time. And I was just watching clips of it this afternoon Oh, my goodness. I mean, it literally is teenagers with machine guns just mowing people down. And it's just a brutal war movie. Well, I think it's important, Jeff, to
1: to recognize the lineage of this film, because the director of this film is John Milius. And if you don't know who John Villius right. is, he, he wrote. is the guy responsible for Conan the Barbarian. I mean, he is just, he well, lives he that, that hyper-violent a macho now. lifestyle.
2: Well, the funny thing, even more interesting, and just and this is, we'll get to my pitch before too long here, but the story that it's based on was originally written by Kevin Reynolds, the guy that directed Waterworld, and he directed Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and works with Kevin Costner and stuff like that. And he gave it to the studio, and the studio liked it, but then they decided to give it to Milius, who they even described as somebody who loves war movies and loves war. So it turns (laughs) from Kevin Reynolds wrote an anti-war, kind of like a biting anti-war one, whereas then he turned it more into a glorification of war. But I got to say, like, because I remember seeing this movie when I was a teenager, it came out when I was four years old. So I probably saw it, you know, like 10 years later or something like that. Oh, my gosh. This was this was the saddest movie I have ever seen at that age. Like it was heart wrenching. And for, so from that perspective, there was a certain level of anti war element to it where, you know, you got all these teenagers that are fighting and dying and. Um, and it does end with they gave their lives to protect a more perfect union or whatever. They quote the Constitution, which apparently the studio forced him to add at the end of the movie. <laughs> anyway, all that to say, uh, as a in case you didn't get enough of a summary from all that, as a brief summary, it takes place in Colorado where these high schoolers look out the window one day and all of these paratroopers come in and they're uh, communists that conquer the town and take over the middle of America These high schoolers take to the hills with guns and decide to start this kind of, like, revolt. So they start, like, fighting back, and and it gets real, not bloody. There's not actually much blood in this movie, but there's a lot of dying people. So anyway, that all takes place. A bunch of people die. Only two of the teenagers actually make it out alive, and they make it to the free United States And again, that takes place in 1984. So the sequel, Blue Dawn, takes place in 2018, 34 years later. So Danny and Erica, who were the survivors from the first movie, they've been married and they live in Nevada, which is the kind of the the border. I guess Utah would technically be the border of the free United States, but they live in Nevada. World War III ended in 1988. There was a ceasefire and what ended up happening is the communists took over the middle of the country So what it ended up doing is it split the United States into three separate countries. So west of the Rocky Mountains turned into the New Republic of America, east of the Mississippi River turned into the Democratic Republic of America, and the center of America became the United Soviet Socialists of America, Um, obviously with links to the still existing USSR. Uh, So there's an uneasy alliance between the three different countries, especially obviously the one in the middle, uh, but life somehow, somewhat returns to normal. But everything kind of gets set back 20 years because uh, the movie, the first movie, even talks about there were nuclear bombs dropped on Los Angeles and Washington D.C. Uh, the middle of the country was just wiped out, you know, conquered, et cetera, et cetera. So it is 2018, but it kind of looks more like 1998. Danny and Erica, they have a son named Drew, who is a senior in high school, and he kind of has a chip on his shoulder. He's failing high school, and he's one of those those kids who kind of blames a lot on the Reds, the, the communists. The Reds do this, and this is blah, 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 blah. But he's got this history professor who takes a special interest in him and kind of gives him these history books that he's not allowed to teach in uh, history class, but kind of gives a fuller story to World War III and what has happened in in the past and everything like that, which kind of increases this chip on his shoulder. There's been rumors over the years, uh, I mean, again, it's been 30 years, but there's been rumors of poor treatment of the citizens that live in the USSA. Students started protests, but Danny and Erica won't let Drew go and participate in those protests. So, you know, grumpy teenager, he, he discovers a picture of his parents as Wolverines, which was the school that they went to back in that first movie, and figures out that they were actually heroes from that very first resistance that people still talk about. He sees a mention of them in one of the books that the professor kind of turned him on to. So then Drew sneaks out and he goes to this protest anyway. So the protest, Things start getting out of hand, kind of getting a little violent and everything. And in the midst of this, Drew sees the professor, who his history professor, who's there, and he's acting kind of strangely. So he kind of starts investigating him. Figures out that his professor is actually a USSA, an operative who's under cover or whatever, trying to stir up trouble and get these protests going. And through, you know, sneaking into his office or whatever he does, uh, he finds out that the USSA is actually planning a sneak attack on the new republic of america but nobody believes it so he finally resorts to his last his last resort is to tell his parents and his parents instantly believe him with the, their history with the, the communists etc etc cetera, et cetera. so they believe him so the three of them decide that the only thing that they can do is they need to prepare an ambush for this attacking force so the three of them, they put all of these plans together and everything like that. Like there's this one specific place that they're going to be able to, because they know the terrain and from their history and yada, yada, yada. So they, and anyway, they end up figuring out how to ambush and to stop this sneak attack. And while they're doing it, or they happen to see uh, like somebody kind of spying on them with these binoculars. So they end up chasing them down and figure out that this is actually the resistance from the USSA that was spying on them because they were trying to ambush this group as well, but they didn't have the resources. So Drew and Danny and Erica end up following the resistance back into the USSA. They find out that the situation is worse than they'd actually heard. People are being mistreated, everything is bad, and they desperately need help. But they also find out that the USSA is not self-sufficient because they're landlocked, they're in the middle there, so they don't have enough resources to sustain themselves, which is why they need, why they're planning to attack both the New Republic of America and the Democratic Republic of America because they need to expand to survive. However, then the resistance has this plan that if because of that, if they lose enough of their infrastructure, the USSA, then they would probably just collapse and leave. Then the New Republic and you know, the, the, the rest of the United States could kind of come back and regain control. But the resistance doesn't have enough support because they figured there is actually six targets that need to be hit simultaneously or else the military will like get support back from Russia and, and Cuba and everything. And they need to uh, they need to hit Omaha, Dallas, Houston, Minneapolis, Des Moines and Little Rock all at the same time. So Erica, Danny and Drew all split up and they go to different parts of the country trying to rally people that they all need to kind of join the resistance. So they they're they're telling like dreams of the US the U, the USA that you know, adults that now are in their 50s, like they were teenagers back then, so they've probably forgotten about what the USA was like. Anybody who's younger than that, they never even knew the United States. All they've known is the USSA. So if there's a lot of that kind of like, that's where the patriotism I think comes in about kind of like, Pitching those dreams of what the USA was supposed to be, and this is why you need to fight for it. So then the plan begins. You know, there's obviously this is kind of like the the big climax of it. The end result, uh, whatever happens along the ways, Erica is Erica's going to die. Erica has to die. Erica dies, and two uh, doesn't really matter which two, I guess. Two of those different cities fail. So four of them succeed, but two of them fail. Uh, And so then, you know, the resistance is like, oh my gosh, we came so close and now we're just going to be crushed because their military is going to raise up. But as soon as they're about to lose hope, that's when the military from both the New Republic of America and the Democratic Republic of America both show up, conquer those two, meet in the middle, and everybody chants U.S.S.A. Or U.S.S.A. They would just chant U.S.A. until... No, that's that's a joke. But nonetheless, it would be it would be the patriotic end. That they shake hands in the middle, and say
0: hoorah or something.
1: Hey, how about it? You know, Jeff, as you were making that pitch, there were certain elements of that that came to me, and I realized, you know what, Phil, uh, we've omitted and we haven't talked about is the postman oh yeah And we've already done an episode so if you want a little bit more of a discussion on our uh, patriotic films we both love go check out the postman episode in the archives because just the setup for your blue dawn sounded a lot like the world of the postman right
0: i was gonna bring that up earlier but we got a little off topic and uh i, I left that one where it lay adam what do you have for us Well,
1: what are you going to do? What are you going to do when July 4th comes rocking on you? You know, there are films we've talked about, we've dropped several names, but I think everybody can agree there's only one true movie that represents the 4th of July in any specific fashion. And that is the 1996 blockbuster from Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin, Independence Day. Though it was the number one film of 1996, grossing over $817 million worldwide, I did not see this movie in theaters. In fact, I did not see this movie on home video. What? Yes. I was resistant to anything that was popular at that point in my life. I mean, I'm 14 years old. I would not go to theaters to see it. It had an action figure line. You would think that would have pulled me in. All these elements going for it. But no, I resisted. And then... The other day, as I often do, I decided to pick up a copy on VHS and give it another (laughs) look. I watched this film last week and I said to myself, okay, you know what? There is an untold story here because we know they did come back. They did try to recapture the magic of Independence Day with resurgence, a failed experiment that people derided. But what I decided to do is give us a prequel and... In order to prepare for this prequel, I actually happened to a used bookstore, so I did my extra credit, and I grabbed the Independence Day movie novelization because I thought, is there more to this story I want to tell? Or what happens to a man when he's abducted by aliens? What were the details? <laughs> so yes, I will be focusing on Randy Quaid's character, Russell Case, who was abducted 10 years prior to the events of Independence Day. You'll recall from the marketing at the time, every poster, everything you were seeing, ID4, ID4! That was what the movie was basically known as until it came out. And so I give you idb 4 The film opens in Russell Case's last moments as he flies his kamikaze courts up into the weapon of the alien mothership. But before he enters that bright, bright light, we flash back to... The California Desert, 1986. We see Russell tinkering with the engine of an old biplane. A little boy named Miguel pops up out of the cockpit, pretends to fly the plane, but accidentally smacks Russell the head with the rudder as a result. Dazed, Russell thinks he sees a round floating object up in the sky disappear into a moving cloud, but shakes it off as Miguel reminds him they have to pick up some milk and butter at the store for their macaroni and cheese dinner tonight. At the store, Russell notices children's faces on milk cartons listed as missing as well as some xerox posters on a bulletin board listing adults who have gone missing from the neighboring town russell also gets into a conversation with another local about he could, could have made more money working at the nearby nuclear power plant but russell said he prefers to think about the freedom of the skies not being grounded to earth Arriving home, we see Russell has a total of three young kids that he plays stepfather to with his wife, Maria. We also see the walls covered in old military photos and medals from Russell's career in the military and some awards for local flight exhibitions. We also see that bills are piling up a bit, and Russell tells Maria he needs to go back to the hangar to finish restoring the plane so he can get paid by the owner. Then they will take a road trip to Catalina that they've been planning. Can't really take a road trip. There's a road trip to the shore, and then you take a boat. Just for clarification. <laughs> <laughs> So, working late into the night, Russell doesn't notice the small alien craft emerging from the clouds in the darkened sky and stopping over the hangar. Suddenly, Russell is paralyzed by an unseen force, but hears a voice in his head saying, You will not be harmed, as a dozen small gray aliens infiltrate the hangar, skittering around and injecting him with a long needle, and he blacks out. He wakes up intermittently, only to feel his body levitating towards the sky and into an opening in the ship. He can see the lights of his house flickering below as he blacks out again. Frightening deeds of aliens performing invasive tests on Russell follow as he screams and cries, while images of his time in Vietnam and his family flicker in his mind. Mentally, he hears, You will be returned soon with no damage. But when one of the aliens gets close enough, Russell stabs it with one of the probes and tries to hobble out of the room. When he sees a reflection of himself in a window surface, showing that his skull has been cut open and the front half of his brain exposed, he passes out. Russell wakes up in a cell where he immediately reaches for his head, only to find that he's been put back together again, good as new. He meets some other abductees and recognizes them as the missing individuals he saw on notices at the store. One of these is Deborah, a divorced telephone operator who was abducted three months prior and has been given telekinetic powers through experimentation that allow her to be the interpreter between Earthlings and aliens. It was her voice that Russell heard when he was taken. Russell also meets a fellow vet who he served with in Vietnam named Reynolds, who it was assumed had been taken prisoner in a POW camp but in fact had been abducted and held all these years, surviving only because the aliens wanted to observe Earth combat methods, and he proved to be a superior soldier. Menel's admits his sadness that he had been at war for 20 years in one way or another. It's explained that the aliens are planning an invasion of remote areas of the country where they are less likely to be noticed. At Russell's town, it's on the list. This will set the stage for a global invasion in the future. Concerned for the fate of his family, Russell demands to know how to stop them, but Deborah claims there is no hope that he should just accept their fate. Russell can't accept this, but is soon taken in for more testing himself. Passing through the lab, He sees humans in various stages of dissection, all leading to a room where aliens are trying to make a biomechanical suit out of Earthling body parts that one of their kind can fit into with no success. It's a gruesome affair, indeed. It is inferred that they will try to inhabit the bodies of the children next as they share similar body dimensions to the aliens, and thus Russell is more determined than ever to find a way out but he also witnesses staged combat scenarios between humans and aliens, where these unwilling combatants armed with stolen military tech are obliterated by prototype alien bio-armor, similar to what we've seen in the original film. One of the only survivors is Reynolds, who mourns the loss of life, though he is rewarded by the aliens for his prowess. The captors take Russell to a hangar where they've collected various types of Earth vehicles and placing him in a simulated cockpit of a plane, they connect a cable to the base of his skull, which is tethered to the machine. It's then he notices an alien in the cockpit of a Cessna aircraft next to him with a similar cable attached. As they start the simulation, Russell instinctively begins to work the controls, which the alien pilot then begins to mimic flying the real plane around the space they have successfully imprinted his flight skills onto one of their kind. Realizing the urgency of the situation and seeing how easily the aliens can obtain abilities to adapt to the humans' defenses, Russell convinces Deborah to fight against their captors, at least for the sake of the children who have been abducted. Reynolds offers to create a distraction by turning on his uh, captors during the next combat scenario, setting off a stockpile of explosives he's been setting aside for just such an occasion. He reveals that they're the last surviving Earthlings as the first invasion is scheduled for a few hours from now and all others have been executed as Reynolds sacrifices himself by turning on the aliens and preparing to set off the explosives Russell Deborah, and the kids make for the hangar to commandeer planes so that Russell can fly them all to safety grabbing a few alien blaster cannons along the way as they make their escape the alien invasion forces pursue their basic spacecraft over the desert into the night sky After the blasters on the plane are disabled by an alien craft locking itself onto Russell's plane in midair, he drops inside to kill the aliens and disengage the locking mechanism. Deborah assists, but is mortally wounded in the struggle. She transfers knowledge to Russell from the dead alien of how to fly a spacecraft, proposing that Russell fly himself and the kids to safety while she leads pursuing aliens away in the plane. They do so just as Russell sees the explosion of the mothership in the night sky, realizing that Reynolds' sacrifice was successful. But now the deactivated alien crafts are self-destructing and falling out of the sky, disintegrating as they descend. All except for one that is careening towards the nuclear power plant. Russell and the kids intercept this craft in the nick of time, knocking it over a nearby hill where it disappears. Just as they begin to come in for a landing, one alien who made it to the ground begins firing off a bazooka-type blaster at Russell's borrowed craft, damaging it. But before it can get the fatal final shot in, a dying Debra aims her plane for the alien and crashes right into it with a fiery explosion. As Russell manages to just barely land his craft, Debra's final anguished moment of life sends out a psychic pulse which knocks out Russell and the kids as the wreckage of the spacecraft disintegrates around them. Morning. Russell panics slightly as he feels himself yet again being lifted towards the sky, only to find that he's being airlifted by a medical helicopter. At the hospital, he's told that some kids were found wandering the desert and telling crazy stories about aliens. He tries to agree with them and confirm their stories, but the doctors chalk it up to shock. Then some government agents arrive to debrief Russell, who tells them all he can remember, which is only up to the moment he was initially abducted and probed. Everything to do with Deborah, the kids, and the impending invasion is wiped. The agents share a satisfied glance and leave, just as Maria and her children arrive to see Russell, who is visibly changed in demeanor. He says, dejected, Honey, I don't think we're going to make it to Catalina after all. The final scene takes place a few weeks later as Russell is followed out of his house by a troubled Maria who sees him throw down a newspaper featuring a derogatory article about his alien abduction count, and he drives drunk to the outskirts of town, steadying himself on a large rock. As he fishes around in his pocket for a flask, he finds Reynolds' dog tags and stares at them blankly, chucking them into the nearby reservoir. And as the shining metal sinks to the bottom, a preserved alien spacecraft is seen beneath the water and the camera winds through an open door to reveal a light on the console suddenly blinking. Then we cut to Russell's final heroic moment of redemption, saving the world by destroying the mothership. As credits roll. IDB4.
2: Now, what? I don't remember us calling the first one ID4. I feel like that's the second one.
1: Yeah, yeah you go back. Go check out posters for the film, like promo posters and even commercials.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I've got a a hard-boxed DVD set, and it does say ID4 on it.
1: Well, you don't want to poke holes in my story. You want to poke holes in my title.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Well, because not only that, because just as a context for Independence Day you had to see Independence Day in the theater. It is not the same movie. I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah.
1: Although, I was yeah. looking at some of the special effects. They were sped up and super awkward. So I don't know, maybe that's yeah. because they were doing with miniatures. But
2: Right, because you, yeah. I mean, like, that. the scene where they blow up all of the cities, like, to see that in a movie theater back in 1998 or whatever, oh my, it got a standing ovation in my theater after that. Like, wow.
1: Yeah, it well, was I, I will say, on the patriotic note... That Bill Pullman's speech, you know, Lone Star from Spaceballs is now our president. (laughs) I think his speech is great. There's a great delivery. It's well written. And that idea of uniting the world, essentially. We're one nation now, you know, like the nation of humanity. It was a nice message. Again, I did not see Independence Day resurgence. However, tonight, went to uh, Walmart to do a little shopping. And picked up a copy
2: out of the discount bin. Of course, so I will eventually have oh, it. Feel like you've still overpaid. <laughs> just, just, just no good. But I will say, like that, and it's it's interesting. And I don't know why we view it as patriotic, but for some reason, self sacrifice does feel very patriotic. So, like that was that was the highlight of that first movie, uh, uh, Independence Day. Like that was the 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 big moment was when he does. Randy Quaid sacrifices himself. So for in this one, yeah, you have the same. Obviously, it's not Randy Quaid, but sacrifice is a big deal. The idea,
1: obviously, is that's where he got the inspiration to do that as well. Mm. You know, he okay. had experienced that once before. So,
0: yeah.
2: Hmm.
1: All right, Jeremy,
0: I'm very curious to find out what you're throwing at us tonight. All right. Let's see if I can set the scene here. A 10-year-old boy, Charles, and his friends are biking around a river near Coolville, Ohio, a podunk little quaint town of less than 500 people, as they approach Y2K in the summer of 1999. The lead boy blazes around a corner on the river bend as he usually does just ahead of the rest of his boys, but this time it's different. A loose rock throws his tire out of the line, out from under him, causing him to careen off the edge and onto the rocks 15 feet below, bouncing off them into the river. The remaining boys split up, two head into the water to retrieve him, the others burn off back to town to get help. Charles, the lead boy, is fished out, but he suffered head trauma and is now in a coma. Ten years later, in 2010, Charles wakes up, mysteriously. In telling his story, he speaks of strangers who visited him when he was in a coma, teaching him, and it becomes a national intrigue piece, slowly as people began to test him and realize this is a miracle. He's never been educated above the fifth grade, and he's blowing people away with his knowledge of history, including history that happened while he was out. And in doing this, to prove that he understands and that he was taught things, he began to help out on nationally recognized cold cases, mysteries, and murders. Now that he's a superstar, he helps out the city council that year, given mayorship the next year and began a political ascension, taking over a seat in Congress as a rep in 2012, stole a Senate seat by election in 2016, and has begun his ascent, shooting for the presidency. And as we approach the election of 2024, one of these other boys who fished him out of the river had become a, a cop an investigator in that town and he's always had an inkling that something was off and we follow our investigator as he searches to figure out what is wrong with Charles or if Charles is even Charles or if he's been taken over by someone else and i won't spoil the rest of the movie but <laughs> And now is this wait, an original wait, pitch? What?
1: <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to unlock the mystery. Yeah,
0: uh, yeah. It's more of an original piece. Oh, okay. Oh. I'm like, I have no. Is this ET? Is it Stranger Things? <laughs>
1: yeah. I had
2: no clue. I was
1: like the Omen. I don't know. He's not Dave. He's really Damien. Like
2: I don't know. Some weird no. something. Okay. Okay.
1: Interesting.
2: Okay. So, wait. So then, do we? Uh, 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 Do we, do we, uh, are we, we're suspicious of this child then? We think he might be
0: evil? Well, he's a wonder kid. Like how, how does he know all these things? And it's got a little bit of political intrigue. Why is he ascending so quickly to these positions of power? What's going on?
1: Well, you know, what's funny is I thought it was somehow like a sequel to the movie Phenomenon. You yeah, had... I
2: started that way too. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was I, gonna I was... turn into Flight of the Navigator. I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> There's a lot of options, a lot of different ways to go. It even
1: sounded like a little bit like stand by me for some reason at the beginning too. That's <laughs> those are the kids I was visualizing, except one of them came yeah. the corpse. They didn't go find a corpse, you know? Like, uh. Yeah, oh, but that's interesting. Yeah, okay, well, uh, and, you, and you're saying there's more to be told, so people can find your original fiction. Where, 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 do you, where are you selling this book, Jeremy? Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, uh, nowhere yet. Get your Kickstarter going. <laughs> yeah, if you find us via the Jupiter Ascending episode, please write to me. Find me on Twitter at Front Office Jer. And let me know why the heck you guys are looking up Jupiter Ascending.
2: <laughs>
0: yes, we all want to know that. 200 people have looked it up this week. What? I don't know. And it's every week. That's crazy. It's like this.
2: so Maybe it's just that baffling, like, who would make a sequel to Jupiter Ascending?
1: We That's just crazy. need a spinoff podcast. We will pitch the entirety of Jupiter Ascending to by the time. Yeah the witch house get their act together well I think we've done it here I think we've uh, well, gentlemen we've obviously unlocked the secret of patriotic films uh, this yeah. is an academic discussion that Jeff is obviously thrilled by mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, we, we thank you all for joining us those of you who are uh, celebrating it, the actual Independence Day July 4th play it safe out there with that fireworks yes, do you want to tell a quick story as we go out about 4th of July fireworks however uh Uh, this is a
0: good one you you do have all your fingers and toes right
2: right this is however after you say play it safe however (laughs) well well, this this is what i'm saying
1: you we often think that these mishaps occur you know individuals you know not not taking care of themselves maybe getting a little too much firepower staying a little bit too close but jeff and i used to celebrate Many holidays, our former co host Justin, his grandfather had a uh, a timeshare. I was at Lake Havasu. We were there for Fourth of July weekend, was my recollection, Jeff. You could debate this. That's true. If you, yeah. And uh, so we were all out there partying, and we ended up getting word hey, at the local casino, they're doing a big Fourth of July fireworks display. There's going to be a lot of music behind it. Well, so we on, got out. Hang
2: on. Time out, time out. Now, when you say we were all out there partying, let's rephrase that. Like Lake Havasu, that's not really our scene. So there's not, that's, let's, let's, I want to clarify that. We did know about this in advance. It wasn't like what there's going to be fireworks. Like yeah, because we went with we went with Justin's grandparents.
1: So we we headed out to the casino, got our spots on the lawn. It was like had a you know the river beside it there, and they had this station off in the distance where they were supposedly launching all the fireworks from. So the sun goes down, finally ready. Okay, it looks like they're going to get stuff started here. The music kicks in, and just as the music kicks in. All of the fireworks goes off at once. It just from that station over there. All of a sudden, it's flying. It, it, you just see that like there are people over there, obviously running it, getting it going. I I remember just the silhouette running away, trying to get to where we were as this fireworks is just exploding at ground level yeah. behind these people trying to escape. Yeah, so about, for about five minutes, it's just everything was. Detonating, And we, we were just, like, in shock, you know? Yeah. a agape. And luckily, to our knowledge, nobody was injured. But about half hour later, they said, Folks, we're going to try to continue the celebration, you know? And so they started the music again. And obviously, all the fireworks had been cued to the music. But instead, now it's just like, pew! You know, there was just nothing going on like there was so little left. It's just it was an unforgettable experience. And with that, tell your friends about the podcast. Make sure you're finding us on your preferred platform. We're easier to find than ever. And If you want to be part of the show, reach out to us. We are always ready to hear more ideas, although we're not running out of any, that's for sure. So we want to thank you, and be sure uh, to check out some of our more recent episodes. I mean, our Super Mario Brothers sequel experience was pretty exciting, and we had our bonus episode with the guys from smbmovie.com. If you ever wanted to know more about that, Jeff does not. <laughs> he was... But uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of classics in the archives, so please go back, check them out, and leave us a review on iTunes. We actually had a few people I noticed recently leave uh, some kind words. Oh, so we wow. It. So, until next time. we well, proud to be here on Sequel Quest, where we talk about fake movies. And we can't. We'll give the studio suit to prevent it for free So we have to make up sequels and prequels to films that never had their day Cause there ain't no doubt there won't be made But we'll pitch them
0: anyway God bless you, Sequel Quest We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was. Share your ideas with the Sequel Quest universe by visiting SequelQuestPod.com, following us on Twitter at SQPod, on Facebook by searching Sequel Quest, or sending an email to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com. Let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five-star rating on iTunes. All films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended.